And so the reason that buyers are so interested in evaluating how fast you've been growing historically perspective is because it's a strong indicator of how you're going to grow after the acquisition, right? Now, there's a whole myriad of things that the buyer is going to be bringing to the table that hopefully will promote organic growth post-close. But the one thing they really want to look at is, okay, how, how has this firm grown uh, on their own? And, and they use that as an indicator for what they can expect in, uh, from a future perspective. Alan Darby, Jacqueline Martinez, this is the Buyer's Boardroom. Learn the most about who you are today and where you want to be after. Welcome back, friends and family. This is the Buyer's Boardroom. I'm your host, Rick Music, and with me as always, the lovely Jacqueline Martinez and the powerful Alan Darby, who are the Zen masters of all things M&A. And here we are, episode three. Guys, congratulations. The reviews are in on uh, episode two. You guys crushed it. The ball hasn't landed yet. So uh, let's keep it up. We've got a lot to unpack. Um, actually, this is an interesting episode because it kind of dovetails off of uh, episode two. And we're going to focus a little bit on growth and what kinds of growth there are. But something something kind of funny, um, we touched base on our last episode about attractiveness to a seller to a buyer, right? Right. And, I rather enjoyed that because I can, you know, put some of that into my actual personal life. But outside of personality issues, the number one factor buyers are looking for are, are, are growth. But why is understanding organic growth, organic growth, so important to a buyer, for a buyer to understand? What, what's the gist of that? Yeah. Um, well, it's something that, you know, we, we do want to be clear that broadly speaking, buyers are interested in what was generally called the cultural aspects of the partnership, you know, and so that's, tends to be the qualitative things that we spent a bit of time talking about in that last episode. However, they're making an investment, right? There's, they're potentially writing a check for millions, if not tens of millions of dollars for this assets, um, and they want to return them, right? So there's a, it's a talent acquisition, a good geographic expansion, all these things. But at the end of the day, they're looking to make a return on their investment. So the, the question, Rick, is really where the buyers make their return. And uh, we're going to promote a, a future episode. Our next one is going to be with our old colleague, Matt Raker, um, who is a partner at Merchant Investment Management. And uh, they've made investments into what, like 80, 80 different RIAs. So they certainly know what they're talking about when it comes to determining how, how firm is likely to perform, um, financially speaking, after that post-acquisition. And so we'll spend a lot of time from the PE back firm's perspective on how they view things. But in general, you can think of the sources of return for any buyer in three forms, okay? The first component of the return is simply the cash flow that they're acquiring, right? So they're valuing your business largely based on the amount of free cash flow or EBITDA that they're acquiring. Uh, they have a constant capital from whatever their source of capital is. And the net net of that trade is a, should be a positive return to the buyer, okay? But the thing that people need to understand is that's not a sufficient source of return, typically to entice a sophisticated buyer into acquiring your practice. The reason is if, if we're not factoring any growth post-acquisition, that cash flow stream, because clients are leaving, clients are dying, they're withdrawing money, that will gradually decline over time. And so you know, factoring their cost of capital with that reality, that, that wouldn't be enough to, to, to motivate someone to acquire your business. Um, this, so that's the first one, though. The second source of return would be what we call the delta of the deal. And Jacqueline, I want you to kind of take this because it's it's very important. 
So I'll explain what it is and you can tell us why buyers don't really put an over amount of emphasis on this one. It's essentially the reality that the buyer, the larger entity, has a higher value than what they're valuing your practice at. So let's say they acquired you for eight times EBITDA, but the buyer's EBITDA valuation the multiple be applied to it was 15. So there's a seven turn delta. The moment they buy a dollar of EBITDA at, at eight, now worth 15, they picked up seven turns of that multiple on their balance sheet. So Jacqueline, why, why, right. why would a buyer not? Yeah, for, for whatever's left over, Jacqueline, why don't you finish that thought? Yeah. Perfect. Um, right. Well, I mean, it's not, yes, it is an overnight pickup. If they were to go to market and they were to recap or have some sort of liquidity event on that, but more often than not, it doesn't happen right away. So it's, it's kind of a, a theoretical, very real, but, but not immediate impact on the balance sheet, impact on cash flow. This is when there is the exit that they're modeling into their return math. Okay, if we exit at the 12 in your example, then then the returns would look this way with our cost of capital. And, and it, it's very real value, particularly if there is integration of a lot of services and technology and, and there's EBITDA improvement upcoming from that. And it's not purely a, a financial play here of that arbitrage, um, but it, it, it's not overnight in terms of the cash flow impact. Yeah, and, and it's highly reliant on the market, right? Multiples ebb and flow. They don't, they don't persist and go up all the time. They could go down. So it's like an unknown quantity, you know, value until there is an exit for the buyer, right? And so you've got cash flow, the return on their cash, the, the EBITDA that they've acquired, not sufficient enough. There's the delta picked up between what they acquired you and what they're worth. More impactful, probably still not sufficient enough for them to entice them to do it. The third component of return comes from the growth of their acquisitions post-close. Okay. And that's, that's what we're broadly calling organic growth. And so the reason that buyers are so interested in evaluating how fast you've been growing historically perspective is because it's a strong indicator of how you're going to grow after the acquisition. Right now, there's a whole myriad of things that the buyer is going to be bringing to the table that hopefully will promote organic growth post-close. But the one thing they really want to look at is, okay, how, how has this firm grown uh, on their own? And, and they use that as an indicator for what they can expect in, uh, from a future perspective. Um, now, the thing that we need to understand is, which is a big misconception out there, is what do they mean when they say we're getting growth? Okay, a lot of people, Jacqueline, they, they, they think they've been growing fantastically, and I'm speaking of the seller. Um, but what they're doing is they're looking at their just their gross asset growth or their gross revenue growth. And the fallacy is that when you look at, say, say you were at 100 million in January 1, and the end of the year, you were 150 million in assets. Okay, you would conclude that you grew 50%, and you did, right? But it's not all organic growth. What, what we need to do is what is evaluate what portion of that growth came from the stock market. And any growth attributed to the stock market will be removed from the calculation through the lens of the buyer. And so they're looking at a metric, we call it the golden metric here, it's called net new assets, which is essentially looking at influx of dollars. So you could have new client acquisition, existing clients adding to their accounts, and then you subtract clients leaving. So clients terminations, you subtract 
clients, uh, dollars that have been withdrawn from their existing accounts. You know, those types of, so you, you do the net flows coming in minus the net flows going out, and that equals your, you know, your true net flows. That's the metric they're going to be looking at to determine how much you grow. Okay, so it's not, and, and Jacqueline, you can speak to this. A lot of firms tell us that growing great, you know, we're going to love our growth. And then when we do the net new asset calculation, that doesn't tell quite the same story. Yeah, I think I think it comes down to how, like in general, how we've seen business owners evaluate their business. They're looking at their their annual prints on the ADB and and seeing those numbers increasing. They're thinking about the new assets coming in the door each year. We brought in twenty million, fifty million, whatever it might be during that year, but not not necessarily thinking about like boat read plans that have moved on for whatever reason and just other distributions that have happened that are detracting from those things. So the more that we can isolate the story, and maybe there's a really great story there that some acquirers will look at and say, wow, you really created a unique strategy around bringing in new clients and we would love to deploy that across our other offices. It's a great opportunity to really tell that story of what's been successful and how a partnership can help accelerate that growth too. So, so Rick, you know, back to your question, like it's important, like we had a firm come through recently and if I'm, if I'm correct, they were, they were telling us they were having organic growth of 27% a year. You look back at their three-year trend, 27% a year. When we did the net new asset calculation, it was like minus 2%, right? So the conclusion was that you're, 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 you're losing assets through the buyer's perspective even though they thought that they had done, they crushed it with 27%, just put, but it was all driven by the mark. So it's important to distinguish uh, where your growth is coming from. So, Alan, Jacqueline, are you, okay, are you telling me that if I don't have good NNA growth, then I'm going to have trouble finding a buyer? Is that what you're, is that, because it sounds like that's what you're saying. No. Yeah, go ahead. yeah uh, you know, it's not, you can find a buyer. Like there, there, there are myriads of buyers who um, would likely purchase your practice. It's, it's not like if you don't have positive net new asset growth or strong positive net new asset growth, you're not going to be able to find a partner for you. What we're, we're essentially wanting you to know is don't expect a premium valuation. When we quote uh, like EBITDA ranges, what would EBITDA number would be applied? What multiple would be applied to your EBITDA? It's a range, a high, mid, low. Uh, and if you were low on the net new asset growth factor or had negative, we're, we're saying don't expect the premium, uh, be on the premium end of the range. So you can still find a partner. It's just the, the expectation of valuation probably needs to be metered, uh, given your growth rates. Well, okay. <laughs> well, since we're talking about ranges, like, and we're listening at home, what are, what are, what are, what are low, medium and high growth rate ranges then? I mean, high exceptional, anything double digits would be exceptional and um, really exciting to any any buyer. Um, and there's probably a really unique um, client acquisition story there that that would that buyers would love and could be like one of those examples of being able to roll that out across their network. Um, average would be maybe five to nine percent. And then anything below five and certainly anything negative would be would be low. Um, yeah, so it doesn't like those numbers are not like earth shattering. If you, if a firm came to us and they were seven percent net new asset growth rates, we're like awesome. Yeah, you know, you yeah to be okay. looked at very favorably. So it doesn't. It's not like you have to hit some huge numbers 
once you've stripped out the market, you know, um, but, it, it, but certainly anything below five, you know, or negative, you know, it's not, not, no bueno, not so good. So they always say like, if you're, if you're not growing, you know, it's the opposite, right? You know, I, I guess yeah, if I'm no. a buyer, what are the, I guess, what are the acceptable reasons if they ask you why you're not growing? What are the ones they want to hear? Awesome. Awesome question. Um, so, so one, just if you haven't been growing or even worse, you've had negative growth. Just expect that that's going to be a red flag and we're going to have to create a narrative around it. So your question was actually really good. Um, what's the reason you haven't been growing? And we do think that there are some valid reasons that a buyer would go, okay, it's, there's nothing wrong here. Um, they just need to help. And buyers love that, you know, when they feel like they can come in and deliver real value to you to fix things that are optimal. Okay. So what would be an acceptable reason? The number one thing that I would say, Jacqueline, would be um, that you've hit a ceiling of complexity. Like you've just, you've grown, right? You have been growing, but you've grown so fast, you kind of outpaced your ability to support and deliver the exceptional service that you always have. You don't have the people, the resources, that kind of thing. Okay. Right. So that, and, and we would be able to point to, okay, look at their past track record. They had growth, they had great growth, but then they just kind of plateaued and, and leveled out because they couldn't find the people talent. They didn't have the money to invest in resources. That, that's kind of an acceptable reason. You still might not get a premium offer, but they're not going to see anything like wrong with that picture, right? Right. So, like you're uh, free to allocate resources, marketing dollars. You want to get back into how, what's been great for you historically. But yeah. Um, so we also hear this one, like they were people, um, they're getting one, ready to grow. Sounds like it's right? a good one. Yeah, they, they've invested. They've been. They, they'll tell us, okay, our growth rates are low, but it's because our, our profitability is low, rather. And we, we've made these investments in people, technology, you know, whatever, in anticipation of growing. So they're like trying to turbocharge us to grow. But Jacqueline, what's the reality? Yeah, I mean, the cynical part of me is like, how long have we been investing in this growth? And and you know, and and what is the strategy? And what's holding you back from not? this and and what's been the result what's been the yeah result if any like how how do we turn this from a you know an idea to execution and new assets and yeah they don't ever give us like we made the decision like strategically three years ago to invest in three additional people for these purposes of growth and since we made that investment we have had this uh linear acceleration of growth they don't ever do that it's just like yeah we just haven't quite gotten there yet and that that kind of falls on deaf ears a bit, you know? So it's like, uh, we get it. You made the investments to grow, hasn't paid off, right? And so how long are we going to keep this bloated P&L before you make a good business decision to trim it down and get back to a normal range of profitability, you know? So that that's an issue. But the worst thing that you can say as a reason for not growing is you don't want to grow. You know, like that's that probably is the most negative thing. Again, I'm not saying you wouldn't be able to find a buyer for your business if that's the case. But the last thing that the buyer, again, their number one source of return comes from post-acquisition growth um, is, is organic growth. The last thing they want to hear is you're not interested in it. You know, um, now I will say, and, and what I mean by that is like, you don't, you want to go to the beach or you want to go play golf. You know, we, we'll be, what I often, when we get kind of granular with the, with the seller, often they're just kind of maxed out. You know, they're, they're stressed out. They don't need to take any more clients. Um, but they have juniors on the team that are quite open to growing, you know? So 
we need to make sure we understand when a, when a seller says they're not interested in growth to unpack that a bit. Sometimes when we do so, they're quite open to growing. What they mean is they just don't want to add more hours to their work week. You know, they don't want to they don't want to do it anymore. Like they're, they're perfectly fine with training others or leading the charge, mentoring other advisors who do want to grow. That's okay, you know. But we don't want to paint the picture to the uh, buyer that the moment we transact, you know, write me a multi million dollar check and I'm going to play golf. You know, that's like that thing that they don't want to hear. It can be really hard to conceptualize too. Like, what what would like look like when I'm not also overseeing all the accounting and the HR and just I'm on the investment committee and I'm doing all these things and and yeah. and understanding a world where I'm freed up to just do my highest and best use, focus on business development, and maybe I'm spending less hours, but it's it's more productive towards growing the revenue. And like I always love at you know. Once we've identified which buyer is really an appropriate match for a given prospect and connecting them with advisors that had already joined the firm to help help echo what we're saying of, of things that will that will yeah. come off of their plate. Well, you're right. Sometimes when we talk about growth and the need to grow after the partnership, that the, the seller here is, well, I'm going to be, well, I got to, oh, great. I got to work 80 hours a week. No, that's not what we need. All right. We're going to, we're going to remove things from your plate give you resources and all that stuff. We mean growth in the buyer's world. So that that's needs to be clear. Thanks. Thanks for that, Jack. It's a little philosophical, I guess, too, like the, the willingness to to change the way that you're working and and give up control of certain things that you you have owned in the in the past and just the, you know, as part of really integrating oneself into a larger firm and all the services that are offered to you. But um <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, sorry. And I, you know, and we're up against it. We can spend all day on this, but like net new assets, organic growth. How are you factoring all this into your conversations? I mean, this is how do you, how do you, how do you present this in a, in a, in a, in a manner that they're going to get it and understand and kind of follow your lead? Well, you know, I think, you know, part of it is just kind of helping them understand like, where does the growth come from? Like where, where does the buyer anticipate growth coming from? That typically alleviates a lot of the concern that, you know, you're just going to be turned into a, you know, a robot that's out there, just go get all the assets and that's all you're, you care about. So the first thing that I, we want to get on the table here is that um, growth doesn't come from eliminating expenses. You know, like that's one way to increase profitability is to, and that's something that we see a lot of firms, um, it's like a, this there's a scary PE monster that exists out there uh, where the uh, investor is looking to extract profit from their acquisitions by slashing and burning staff, you know, just making everyone work ridiculous amounts. Um, that's that's not the case. Never seen you know, that. Have we seen it's that different. ever? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's a war for talent. Um, if anything, they want to add valuable team members. So they're not looking to reduce, or excuse me, they're not looking to increase profitability and therefore their return by eliminating team members. Uh, certainly they don't want to jeopardize the revenue stream that they just acquired, right? So like, it, it, and in our business, we all know that the revenue stream is directly tied to the clients and who, who controls that? Well, the lead advisors and the operational support staff. And so they're not looking to remove those people and degrade the client relationship as a result. So returns don't come from reduction of operating expenses. That would be kind of like a de minimis 
return over time, you can only do so much before you're actually ruining the very asset that you bought. So, you know, returns truly do come from organic growth, you know, and that, that is, um, really, really important for sellers to understand and why the buyers are so interested in evaluating what your net new asset growth has been, uh, historically speaking. I got a quick question, sidebar. What percentage of the of of the of the deals that you guys have been involved in have had just the seller leaving on their own after a year? I mean, like walkaway deals or something like that. Are they a high percentage of the deals, or does that not happen very often? Because they get it too. Meaning, no, I want to stick around and grow. It's very rarely. Like it's what you say, Jacqueline. Like I would say, like less than ten percent of the sellers, yeah, who are who we are involved with. I can't speak for all acquisitions, but. The ones that Alaris works with, it's usually the the seller in this scenario. We say seller. That's why we call it a partnership opportunity, Rick, because they're not looking to sell and exit. They're looking to partner with a new buyer who can solve problems for them, bring new resources, you know, improve their quality of life, improve their ability to serve their clients. There's, of course, they're looking for an expanded economic opportunity as a part, result of the partnership too, but they're not looking to leave. And so it's a very, that we do encounter firms who tell us that they're looking uh, partners who are looking to exit within a very short time period. Uh, I will say anecdotally that in those cases, it's usually a result of burnout, you know, and what's, if they do transact, even with that mindset of leaving in a short term, after they're on the other side of the partnership, they find they could stay a lot longer because life is a lot better. They don't have to carry the heavy burden or load that they were previously. And so they, they end up turning that one year time horizon into a three, five, seven year time horizon. Yeah, the camaraderie of being with other like-minded advisors and it's just, yeah, really see like refuel and the excitement of doing doing what they do. So you're using this term partnership. You guys have said something on, um, well, you've, you you say it all the time. You say post-close a lot. You finish, finish sentences post-close so many times and that's resonating to me. And, you know, for those listening, I guess, case study here. Um, let's say I'm a, I'm a firm I'm, and I'm doing my net new asset growth. And we know what that means now. Our, my net, net, net new asset growth is at 7%. And Jacqueline, if, I'm, if my memory serves you correctly, that's, that's pretty good, oh, right? Seven's right. good. Well, how is a buyer going to help me increase that number? What can buyers do now post-close to help me grow with them as opposed to saying, you need to grow more, welcome aboard. What are buyers doing to help me do that? So- we think of like this is the val- the buyer value proposition to the their advisors, and it's like a it's a value stack, you know, and the higher up the stack, the harder it is to pull off. Um, but so we start with the first layer of what a buyer can do to help you grow is get you out of all the stuff that you don't enjoy doing and shouldn't be doing probably right. So that's civilization of the back office. Accounting, payroll, compliance, technology management, billing, all the unfun stuff that you or someone on your team is doing. That's kind of like table stakes, right, Jacqueline? That's like everyone right. does that to the exactly. like they're going to do yeah, that. Yeah, it used to be a competitive edge. Now it's just, that needs to happen. If you're going to be an acquisition game, it needs to happen. Yeah. So, like so filling out order of business and stuff. Yeah, first order of business is clear the decks operationally. So, what does that mean? That means you get capacity, right? So now, you just picked up time to go deploy elsewhere. And ideally, you would be in new client acquisition or mentoring other advisors to do the same. So the second rung of the ladder on the value stack that a buyer can bring is practice management. 
We're going to do a podcast with Stephanie Bogan, one of the premier uh, practice management consultants here in a few weeks. We're super excited about that. But that is an incredibly valuable thing that a partner can bring to you um, is help you operate better. You know, most most smaller practices. And I, look, I, I was this guy. I had my own practice for 20 years. I, I thought I was a great advisor. My team loved me, but I wasn't a great operator. You know, I wasn't a great at managing people and process and, and all that. So a good partner will come alongside you and help you do all that stuff. Train your people, define roles and responsibilities, get the rainmakers on the non-remaking functions, all that. So that's practice management. Okay. So that's another area. So we've gotten capacity. Now they're helping me operate better. So by default, then you should improve. Next would be expansion of services and capabilities. Okay. How do you make me more attractive to a client? You could do that by new services. Okay. So if I'm doing portfolio management and financial planning, well, what if I layered in tax preparation or qualified plan expertise or corporate trustee work or in any number of things that buyers bring to the table? Now I have an expanded toolkit. Presumably I'll be able to attract more clients. Expertise, you know, do they have advanced estate planning attorneys? Um, investment banking personnel, banking, you know, whatever it is, like they expand your services and resources. And then finally is organic growth. How do you help me drive new clients, qualified clients, mind you, through the door that match with my service set and, and who I want to serve as a client, right? And so that that is where, like, how, how can a buyer help me? It's through that progression of things that buyers bring to the table. And they're all different. You know, some focus on others more heavily than others, you know, but, um, and some just don't even address some of them. You know, they want to stay in certain areas of that value set, but that's, that's how, Rick. So that's, that's a very important question and people need to understand that should be really front and center of a value reading is a good fit for you. Well, the irony here, guys, is it, it looks like growth is so important. I think it's kind of great that buyers actually help you do it. I mean, if they all want it, but it seems like some buyers are, are, are uniquely gifted and, and helping, or maybe some are not quite as. Right. And sellers are really starting to ask about that. Certain ones that are, they are really interested in growing. They they know what they're doing today. They know what they don't know, what's not working well, but they're in the process of evaluating who's the right partner for me. That's becoming a more important thing and really vetting and understanding the track record like beyond custodial referral programs, which are fantastic, but they're hard to get into. And and you don't control the longevity of that as even as a national firm, it, it could be turned off theoretically at any time. Um, what other programs internally are there? And and like and let me speak with the advisors that have been in been successful in those programs, too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a great segue um, because we're getting ready to interview uh, a gentleman that is near and dear to Alaris, Pat McClain, uh, co-CEO of Allworth. Um, we think Allworth was perhaps one of the best uh, national acquirers at driving organic growth on behalf of their other partners. So when I spoke to that value stack that buyers bring to the table, Rick, uh, you know, they're they're one of the best at it. But they're also, uh, they're, they're backed by private equity, so they can speak to why it's important for firms to have demonstrated historic um, growth as their means of evaluating their ability to grow in the future and adopt their organic growth strategies and such like that. So um, super excited to interview him uh, and hear what he has to say on the topic. Because he, Pat has a lot to say on, on every topic, so we're, we're excited to hear him talk about this.
uh, Alan Darby, Alaris Acquisitions, I'm super excited to have uh, one of our favorite, uh, not only buyers, but personalities in the industry, Pat McLean, co-CEO of Allwork. Uh, welcome, Pat, to the Buyers Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're so the topic, Pat, um, of the day is why is organic growth so important to a buyer? Okay. Um, so we're going to unpack that uh, and, and how you think about when you're when you're talking to a prospective new partner for Allworth, well, you guys think about it. Um, some of your thoughts on like what 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 are you know how to deliver organic growth without wrecking the life of the the partners who are hardworking entrepreneurs. And then finally, what what does Allworth do to help their partners grow? But before we do, why don't we just take a few minutes and maybe just give us a little info on yourself and Allworth, how you started, kind of where you're positioning yourself to advisors and clients. Just love a quick commercial on Allworth. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, so I'm 60 years of age. I've been doing this for, uh, over 30 years, started the firm, uh, 30 years ago, practicing financial advisor to this day. Um, we took capital the first time when we were $2.4 billion with uh, Parthenon was our capital partner. And then we traded again in December of 2020, uh, to another capital partner, which is Ontario teachers pension plan and Lightyear, And we were at, uh, 10 billion then. Uh, and today we're somewhere around 17 billion. I've done 29 or 30 integrations, uh, small firms, big firms, uh, done as small as 90 million and as large as, uh, I think the 2.2 million or 2.2 billion. Um, so across the board, I like how you call them integrations and not acquisitions. Cause there's a difference, right? Uh, there is a big difference between an integration and an acquisition. All right. So Thank you for that intro. So um, you guys are, are one of the most uh, active acquirers in the country today and have been for some time. Congratulations on your success, by the way. Um, so let's, it's the, the topic we're, we're, we're wanting the seller to understand is why does a buyer care about your historic growth? You know, so think of it through the, the spectrum of attractiveness. And there, I know there's other things that you're going to evaluate, but when you're looking at how attractive a potential partner is. And we're not talking about the cultural assets of it. Do you like them? Those kind of things. We're, this is That's a financial right. evaluation. Why is organic growth important? They're distorted for growth. So, so um, first of all, because if you're growing now, um, the likelihood that you continue to grow is much, much greater than if you're just flat. And right. even if growth is stalled, um, as a as a buyer in this space, we want to understand why the growth stalled. So if the growth stalled because the advisor was maxed out and didn't have the risk tolerance to add more staff, right? right? So let's just say your growth stalled two years ago, and part of it is has to do with everything about risk tolerance. Uh, advisors won't really admit it oftentimes, but look, I've been there. Uh, you grow the firm, and you kind of plateau for a period of time. And in order to grow it again, to, to you know, it's a stair step, you have to actually invest more money in the business, which means one of two things. Either you borrow money or you take a lower income or less money out of the firm for a period of time and reinvest, um, which means your risk increases, but your income doesn't go up automatically. There's a lag. Uh, there's a lag. So if there's growth, what it, what it tells us is that your mindset is right, your, your the personality is right, that you're interested in actually growing the enterprise, that you believe that the your offering adds value to the marketplace. Um, 
if it's your growth is stalled over the last 18, 24, 30 months, um, oftentimes that's okay if if uh, we can tell that it's stalled because you're maxed and you're looking yep. for a solution, which is fine. By the way, um, everyone measures growth X market. So don't- Net new assets, yep. Net new assets, X market, net new assets, right? Existing client, uh, new money, uh, new client, new money. So you're looking for that mindset. And quite frankly, out of I've done a lot of these integrations. You find that firm that's got that growth mindset, and then you splash a little bit of marketing on there and operational efficiencies, and you actually free up that advisor's time, right? You free it up. Big point. Um, yeah, it, that, that, that screen, and the, we try to really hammer this uh, hole with firms when we talk about growth, because I, I find that initially, particularly the ones that are articulating a desire to grow, even the ones that have maxed out a real reason as for not growing, um, they there's a point in the conversation where they start thinking, oh, wait, wait a second. Does this mean I'm going to have to work like 100 hours a week now? Am I going to have to just kill myself to serve at the altar of the growth God? You know, like, it's like, what is is that what you mean, Pat? Because you said something, get them out of things that they shouldn't be doing. You know, like they, they, they're going to divest and a lot of the operational burden freeing them. And that's a big part of the value proposition that all we're bringing to the table, right? Yes, cor- correct. So here's... Uh... Here's, here's, uh, uh, I integrated a firm, uh, uh, in Walnut Creek, California, Mark show in, by the way, I mean, I think he was at 330 million when we integrated his first full year with us, he brought in $50 million in, in new assets, right? Right. Which is north of 15% growth. His second year, he did over $70 million in new assets, right? Year over year. And I asked him how he said, it's this easy, Pat. He said, I gave up about 40% of what I was doing. He said, IT, HR, you know, uh, reviewing this, reviewing that, even asset management, financial planning, making all these decisions. Which, by the way, if you're a business owner and you really track your time to the five-minute increment about where you spent your time, most business owners will find, financial advisors will find that they spend anywhere between 35 and 50% of their time in running the business. That yeah, man, I believe that. The minutia. You know, in a fish doesn't know it swims in water. Um, it's really hard for them to see that because you're in it and you can't imagine another way. So when we integrated Mark Schoen after the first year, I said, how'd you do it? He said, it was this easy. He said, I freed up about 40% of my time. I gave 20% of that time back to the organization and I kept 20% for myself. And so like, right. so you're working less now. Oh, it was, oh, absolutely work a lot less. Um, but I'm only working on the things that I actually am good at and like doing, which is meeting with clients or adding value to the firm in some other manner. And I thought that was probably, and that's not my quote, it's his quote, Mark Schoen. That was the best way ever to explain, you know, how it works because you're not running the business. You're not, you know, you're not dealing with compliance or software systems or HR, or all those things that are required. Of yeah, it's, it's growth in your world, surrounded by resources. It's remove all the things that don't drive the needle for growth or don't reward them personally to get back to where they got into business in the first place, which was serving clients or mentoring those to do the same. Well, that's, that's the top reason firms don't grow. Like they're just spending too much time in those areas. Oh, um, 
yeah, yeah. And and by the way, um, part of it is capacity. So what happens is, and look, I've been doing this thirty years. I've created this own problem for myself and other advisors in our firm. Those that are best at creating growth have a tendency to fill their calendars up faster. That can no longer take more clients. Right. That's just the reality of it. So the way ours are structured is, if you think about it. Like the guy that has tons of time on his calendar or the lady that has tons of time because they can't close new business, it doesn't make them a bad advisor. They just can't, they don't, they don't know how to explain the value proposition very well mm-hmm. to the client. So the idea is when you go in, when we go in there, the firm, we actually try to actually take some of that client service or even move clients off an advisor's calendar to someone else that is probably better suited at servicing those clients, yeah. right? So you can bifurcate your clients uh, into, you know, whatever levels you want. And it's okay for you to give. If you want to grow, look, you're going to have to give something up. That's just. Yeah. No, I, that, I, I, I hear you. I get it. Well, so, so is, it, is it true, Pat, to say that as a buyer, I mean, there, there are things that you're looking for in all of your partnerships. Um, and there's a great, I've worked with you on a number of transactions and I know how important the cultural aspects of the partnership is. Um, but let's just talk from a return perspective. Where does Allworth make the majority of their money in an, in an acquisition? Is it from the cash flow that you acquire? Is it from the Delta and the equity exchange or is it an organic growth? It's well, uh, it's organic growth in. And so when we're looking at a firm, what we're trying to do is engage it to figure out how engaged this person is going to be post-transaction, which by the way, it's hard, it's hard to see because uh, normally, um, you don't give someone a check for $10 million and then tell them that they're going to have to work their butts off because that $10 million may change their view of the world uh, right. significantly. Um, but if they've got that fire and they, and they really want to feed it and we can feed it, um, then they're engaged, right? And so part of that to show the engagement is you look at what they've done historically, and then you think, all right, what happens if I actually, if we came into your world and you didn't have to do this, this, and this anymore, would you still be as engaged? That so when we go back, we we track uh, every integration as most firms do that they've ever done, and the number one um, contributing uh, factor to success is growth before transaction mm. and engagement after transaction. So that's a, that, that's a grant. I, I haven't heard it put that way, um, but I'm glad because that that is when you're trying to evaluate, when you're trying to evaluate with your potential for growth, the historic growth is the number one indicator of whether, and, and you would expect it to be improved in, as a part of uh, all work, of course. So yeah. I know, that's fascinating to hear it said that way. But they have to be, but they have to be engaged post-transaction. Yeah. Uh, Right. So, um, and sometimes everyone's different. I mean, what motivates me may not motivate you. Um, and so, um, it's to figure out what, what, what that motivation is. What's that engagement? Um, well, growth could come from, from me as an advisor being equipped and given capacity and resources to go serve clients directly. It could also come from me uh, mentoring other advisors. That's right. That's right. So it could that's comes in different forms. And so whatever the seller is looking for and changing how they work or their quality of life, and you can, you can accommodate that. Okay. So I know the audience probably doesn't know that Allworth is 
probably if not the top organic growth driver on behalf of their partners in the country. Um, if we, we talk about to sellers, we talk about the value proposition that the buyer is bringing to the table. And it's a step, like a building a brick wall. The, the first layer is removal of operational burden, centralizing all the stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Then it's practice management competence, you know, help me define roles and responsibilities and make me operate more efficiently and better. Then it's expansion of services and expertise, make me more attractive to clients. And then finally, it's can you actually bring new clients through the door on my behalf? And that to me is the holy grail of value proposition. A lot of buyers talk about it, but not a lot of them actually deliver it. And so I want to give you the opportunity to tell a little bit about the story of the, how Allworth drives organic growth because you're exceptional at it. Uh, um, thank, uh, so I'll spend a minute there. But what you just said there was something really interesting, which is the expansion of service. So we've been hearing about in our industry for years and years that uh, there's going to be price compression. Expansion of service is price compression. It's one and the same. It's just got a different name. So if I'm actually either giving away tax or discounting tax or adding something to that relationship that um, is either below fair market um, or not charging for it at all, that is an expansion of service, which therefore would effectively lower my margins, which therefore actually is price compression over a long period of time. But it's table stakes now. It's table stakes. All the big firms like Allworth and Wegg and Creative and all of them are coming to the table with either uh, with tax uh, and or estate or both. Right? That's just that's table stakes. Um, the the other thing is that operational efficiencies. We're, we're assuming that everyone's got those. We're also assuming that everyone's got a robust asset management platform, including tax loss harvesting using something like fifty five IP or direct indexing or ESG or whatever else you want to call it. So those are table stakes, right? Then it becomes like, how are you going to grow this thing organically? And I think we're good at it. The best in the industry, by the way, um, whether you like them or not, is a fisher in terms of organic growth. I don't, people, you know, you say his name and people are like, the great or he's not great. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. He is, he's got the most robust marketing uh, for an independent RIA in, in the industry. Right. The people that have the most robust marketing are obviously Fidelity and Schwab, uh, which, by the way, um, they are in our space uh, and they're not yeah. going anywhere. Um, so we actually, uh, I have 26 people in the marketing department and a call center with, I think, I don't know how many people, eight or nine people that schedule appointments for our advisors across the United States. So- this year, we'll probably schedule somewhere close to 4,500 appointments for advisors that want new clients. Now these are qualified appointments, right? These are these have come through a process where your central team has vetted them to a degree, give them with some high-level value proposition, and really teed up this qualified appointment, put them on the calendar on That's behalf right. of your partner, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and by the way, and it, 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 and we're on a we're on um some of the the custodial referral platforms as well. Right. Um, as are most of my competitors are on custodial referral platforms, which is a form of you know marketing and teeing up those sure. appointments. Um, th th those are all. Uh, but the idea that you can have a robust growth engine that sits outside of a custodial referral platform. Uh, where I think 
I'm look, I'm a fan of the custodial referral programs. I've seen them drive billions of dollars of work. Unbelievable. It's great, right? The the only concern is that, you know, you don't control that. It's you're 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 at the beck and call of the firms that are driving that on your behalf. Um, the thing I like in the Allworth scenario is you're not reliant on anyone to drive those um those those appointments on behalf of your advisors. It's like this omni chill constant outbound marketing. I mean, you have twenty six full-time people on the marketing team, plus another nine or so on the call center. I mean, so that's right. 35 people, 100% every day of their life is devoted to driving organic growth on behalf of your partners. So that, that's, that's right. That's that's, yes. that's right. And and in addition to that, we have a whole different division that works in niche markets. So uh, when I say niche market, we work in airlines, we work in healthcare, we work in telecommunications, and we work on uh, energy uh, uh, production and distribution in different marketplaces across the U.S., uh, which is we actually do workshops for company employees in that space. Um, you yeah. know, it's uh, kind of like, um, you know, Edelman Financial Engines has got that, which is a great lead system, by the way, yeah. for Edelman we're, Financial Engines. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask one more question. Um, you answered the first one. You did we For everyone listening, I did not prep Pat McLean for any of the answers he's giving us today. The first one you uh, answered, like in our podcast before we were interviewing Jacqueline uh, and I, and the number one acceptable reason for not growing is hitting, you know, you get a wall of complexity. Like you've grown and you just, you know, you're not, you're, you're maxed out, right? And so what would you say is not an acceptable reason for not, not growing? Oh, Um, uh, because you own a lifestyle business. Got it. You, you want to you wanna play golf. You want to go to the beach. You know, you're not interested in growing. Right? Look, that's there's look that that's a large part of our industry. They're lifestyle businesses, and and you're not going to change that. God bless them that they're happy with those lifestyles. You know, half our industry, by the way, um, they'll never transact. They'll just retire and not tell anyone. Um. <laughs> <laughs> including their employees and their clients. <laughs> it will become 100% reactive to, to what oh, will take place in the business. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's true, though. You know, the lifestyle businesses, they think afford them this fantastic lifestyle. To an extent, I can see the reality of that. But they're, they have to do everything. You know, the entire business is reliant on them. They go on vacation. Not really a vacation. But guess after time is spent, put that fires back at the office, you know. Yeah, it becomes a, it becomes a very look. Look, marketing marketing is a proactive event. Um, you can run a business reactively, mm -hmm. right? We, you're just responding to things that are coming at you. Marketing is very difficult because you actually have to be very very proactive at it, and to do it correctly, you need to know what the cost acquisition of a client is. So, um, you, you know, we have a robust uh data science team behind it with analytics and insight and that actually can tell me where a lead came from how much it cost how long they lived in the funnel what the cost who touched it in the funnel and what the absolute cost per dollar of aum it, it it ran so here's what happens though alan i see firms that will actually say i'm gonna grow um and they think that Growth is dependent upon them spending more money on marketing. So mm -hmm. they get they get a hold of an SEO firm or they get a hold of someone that's doing seminars or workshops and they're going to put them on for, or they hire a marketing company and they they think that that's going to grow. That can grow, but 
at what cost. Um, so uh, if you're spending money on marketing, you better be pretty darn sure you actually know what the return is. Um, and it's very difficult if you think about our industry. Lifetime value of a client is massive. It's much higher in our industry than it is software as a service. Cost of acquisition can actually be quite high as well, as long as you're acquiring that lifetime value of a client. So in order to grow value of your business, the first thing you do is keep your existing clients, yeah. right? And then the second thing you do is actually bring on new clients and actually know how much it costs to actually bring those clients on. And then the third thing you do is, you know, you make sure that you're, for m my part is that it's an attractive place for firms to end up and the platform is stable and growing at all times. Well, you know, just hearing you talk about how to measure, you know, the dollars that you're investing in the program and the degree of sophistication tells me why you're so successful in it. So, uh, look, Thank Pat, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day. Uh, we're thrilled to work with Allworth, um, certainly in the past and hopefully on many more acquisitions in the future. So I appreciate you taking the time and uh, best of luck to you and the team there. All right. Appreciate it, Alan. And we're back. Uh, great interview again, Alan. You should do this for a living. <laughs> so we're a little light on mailbag today. Uh, those of you just joining us, boardroom at alarisacquisitions.com, boardroom at alarisacquisitions.com. It can be anything, buyer-related, seller-related, anything above relating to M&A, what buyers are looking for, anything you want to know, drop, drop a line and get to us. We do have one today, and this is interesting given some of the things that we've touched on and next week's guest, Matt Brinker, that we'll tee up here in a minute. But... Um, I run a practice. What is better for getting capital? Partnering with an existing buying firm or going to PE? What are the ups and downs with that? Uh, okay. So I'm sure Jacqueline has a lot to say on this, but it's like a nuanced topic, right? Because it's like, what do you need the capital for? Right. Right. Yeah. Like, where are you in the life cycle? How how big is the firm? So maybe, yeah. Maybe if we think about it, like if you're a firm that two billion plus. Then is it an acquisition strategy? Well, it, yeah. Is to add people? You want to invest in technology? You know, what's the reason? Um, this is my opinion, Jacqueline. You share something if you disagree, but like if you're if you're intending on uh, acquiring, for example, like you want to go on a serial acquisition spree, like so many firms are doing today. Well, in that event, you probably do need to look to a, a what I'll call a permanent source of capital. And there, there's you know the traditional private equity route. There's actually um, newer entrants coming in the space that are more family office, longer term solutions for capital. So, you know, it's not just private equity as a source of permanent capital because you're going to, you're going to need um, to rely. Can't, you can't get into the acquisition game and start dating firms and then go get the cap. You know, that's a recipe for the disaster. So you need to know that you have a certain yeah. amount of dry powder to go deploy. Um, now, if you were looking just to, hey, we need to improve our technology and client experience, I would do that with debt. Wouldn't you, Jacqueline? I would, if I didn't have the capital myself, I'd go borrow it. Yeah, I think I think it really depends. Right. Yeah, that might be a much cheaper way to do it. Maybe, I don't know, today's interest rate environment. But the when evaluating private equity firm too, like if I think really understanding is there talent on the team there that has experience in what you're trying to do. And are they are they simply going to be taking their you know, fill in the blank, 20% share of economics ongoing and, and not really partnering with you on the ideas to get things done? Do they have certain expertise that your team is lacking 
that will help you get to that next level. And if those answers are no, then it may not be the best path and there may be cheaper ways to get it done um, and and still achieve still achieve the goals, perhaps into higher internally or hire an external partner that can that can work with you on that specific initiative instead. Yeah. And the alternate route that is just securing capital yourself and doing it, I think there was a second part of this question is, should I just partner with someone else, like a, get acquired? with someone yeah as there was the other Mm -hmm. yeah and so you know that's a very viable pathway it's really it's really um this is another podcast but it's a question of autonomy like if you sell a lot of people equate selling their firm even a full acquisition with a total you know loss of autonomy and control that's not true you know you can have a high degree of autonomy still retain your entrepreneurial spirit and vision and be fully acquired you can still be an owner you know you're rolling a portion of your valuation into the buyer's equity or you or you could do a majority transaction where you were retaining, you know, it's, it's, it's like, don't associate transacting with the, the firm uh, as a loss of autonomy. So it really, to me, it's a matter of, do you want to do the work and go through the frankly brain damage it's going to take to build all this stuff, even with a capital partner, because capital is capital, but you still have to go execute. So are you willing to put in the work, effort and energy without making any more money, mind you? Because you're going to be investing all the new profits if you're successful back into the business. Your enterprise value will expand, but you're not really going to make any more cash flow for a meaningful period of time until uh, those investments pay off. And so it's a matter of there's capital out there, right? Equity capital, debt capital, what have you. But it's really what do you want to do with your life? Um, and do you want to roll up your sleeve and go tackle the uh, the incredibly difficult task of building all this stuff? Because it's, it's not just capital. Uh, so I like Jacqueline's answer about finding a capital partner with strategic expertise that they can bring to you. Um, but beyond that, it's like, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, would it be easier for you just to partner with someone who's already built it and gives you the amount of freedom and flexibility that you're accustomed to, to go execute? So you know, that will be my answer. Closing thoughts on that for any of you out there that have questions like this. Sometimes, it, as you can see, it's not a black and white answer. So other ways to explore this are booking a discovery call with the team here at Alaris so we can unpack all kinds of things on one call, get a feel for your business, give you a better understanding of who you are today and where you might want to be tomorrow. We can help you get there. Um, We're standing by, no obligation. Uh, That's going to just about do it for another great episode, episode three of Buyer's Boardroom. Um, Kind of a big week next week. I'm going to tee up our next guest, Matt Brinker of Merchant Investments. He is going to give us a PE perspective to the world we live in. So, we look forward to everybody coming. Yeah, we're well, super excited. Matt, Matt, Jack, Lee, and I, we, we have spent a lot of time together. And uh, so it's going to be fun. Well, right, Matt, Rick, well, thank you, buddy. Two of my favorite people, Alan Darby, Jacqueline Martinez. I am Rick Music. This has been the Buyer's Boardroom. We will see you in a couple of weeks in our next episode.